Welcome to the Metaverse Podcast. My name is Noah Kravitz. This is episode number five. Today on the program, a conversation with Dr. Alan Cowan. Alan is the CEO and chief scientist of Hume AI and the executive director of the Hume Initiative, the companion nonprofit of Hume AI. Uh, Hume AI is a research lab and technology company whose mission is to ensure that artificial intelligence is built to serve human goals and emotional well-being. Actually met Alan uh, through the NVIDIA AI podcast, and there's an episode with him, uh, plug for that show, go check it out, where we talk about empathetic AI and the idea of aligning the emerging field, the advances in artificial intelligence to best serve human beings and emotional well-being. We talk about all of that from more of an AI-centric lens, but here on Metaverse, we talk about all of this and what it means and will mean to this notion of the Metaverse. So today, there are digital assistants that we interact with all the time, Siri and Alexa, uh, Google's assistants, all of the digital assistants. They're not particularly good on picking up on our emotions. Um, I don't mean to pick on Siri, but it's the one that I happen to use the most. And uh, if Siri could tell when I was frustrated, our conversations might go a little bit differently, especially when I'm trying to get her to play a particular song and instead a different song comes on. I think you've all probably been there. Um, But these digital assistants are evolving into these uh, generative bots, if you will, that are going to serve as sort of the voice anchors. They already are, and increasingly they're going to serve as the voice anchors for our experiences as we move through the metaverse, these more immersive, whether they're in virtual reality or augmented reality or what have you, these immersive experiences where we're interacting with other human beings uh, behind the avatars they're controlling, but also with more and more, they're almost like non-player characters in the gaming world, if you will, these these uh, digital beings, these bots that are there to you know guide us or provide customer service or interact with us, play games with us, whatever it is. And so how can this field of emotion science, which breaks down data to better understand human emotions, how can we leverage that to create AI-powered digital beings, if you will, in the metaverse that will help human beings feel better, that will help our emotional well-being advance? Uh, is that the goal of interacting with, with digital bots? Should they all be aligned with increasing human well-being? What might that look like in the metaverse in a place where There are more and more data points coming from human beings through the words that we say, through how we say them, our our vocal intonations, through our facial expressions, through things that, say, VR headsets are able to, uh, data that they're able to pick up by tracking our gaze and our eye movements and using those as data points. The more immersive and data-rich our experiences are, the more data points that will be coming from us that can be fed into artificial intelligence algorithms to do stuff with. And so what Hume is working on, what Alan is working on, is how to use all of these data points to scientifically better understand human emotion and then use that knowledge to increase human well-being. If that sounds heavy, if that sounds... Uh, philosophical, if that sounds sort of 
intellectually a bit experimental, if you will. It is. It's a great conversation. It's pretty wide ranging. We get into a lot of stuff and uh, I, I enjoyed it. I think you will too. So stick around for that. In the meantime, a couple of quick housekeeping notes. Um, you may have noticed this episode dropped on a Thursday, not a Tuesday. Uh, a lot of episodes booked and recorded all in a short time span. And so we don't want them to sit around. We want to just, there's so much going on in Web3 right now, just in, in its early stages. This is almost like this podcast is becoming almost like a survey course, giving you a little taste of, you know, what's happening in the world of decentralized marketplaces with BitTensor and what's happening in trying to build the mindful med- metaverse uh, and VR with Nenea Reeves and Trip, and what's happening in the world of NFTs and fashion and sneakers and, and sports experiences, gaming experiences, and all these different things. And so as we're recording, let's just get them out to you. So extra bonus episode on Thursday. Maybe we'll move to two a week episodes down the line. But for now, new episodes every Tuesday, some bonus episodes on Thursdays, and then, of course, the newsletter, if you like the written content, coming out on Wednesdays. You can subscribe to all of it on Substack, metaverse.substack.com, and, of course, you can get the podcast wherever you get your podcast: Apple, Spotify, Google, all the usual places. So subscribe, like, rate and review if you're so inclined. Definitely spread the word. Tell a friend, tell a colleague. And uh, we'll just we'll keep talking to the people who are building the metaverse and um, sharing it with you. All right, that's enough out of me. Let's get to it. Dr. Alan Cowan from Hume AI and the Hume Initiative talking about emotion science, the metaverse, and human well-being. Enjoy. All right, Dr. Alan Cowan is here. Alan, thanks so much for joining the show. This is um. This is my first crossover pod with somebody who we met doing the NVIDIA podcast. Uh, so everybody listening, go check that out. I think as we're recording, it may not have come out yet. So maybe they'll hit it at the same time and it'll be um, Hume AI week in my in my life. But thanks for uh, thanks for coming on Metaverse. Of course. Thanks for inviting me. So um, you are the uh, CEO and chief scientist at Hume AI, also the executive director at the Hume Initiative. And also a podcast host yourself. Uh, you've got a show called The Feelings Lab, which uh, you guys did an episode on the metaverse. A lot of it, it's very cool. Everybody out there listening, definitely go check that out. The Feelings Lab, um, pretty diverse, really interesting range of guests and topics that you guys cover. Uh, the the one I was looking at last before we hopped on here was with uh, Fred Armiston uh, talking about horror, which I've got queued up to listen to later. So good stuff there. That's fun. Why don't yeah? Why don't we start? Um, tell tell us tell the audience a little bit um, about what Hume does, what you do in kind of your two hats, related hats with the initiative and Hume AI, and uh, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so Hume AI is a research lab and technology company, and what we do is we leverage breakthroughs in emotion science to provide the data sets, the algorithms, and the ethics guidelines needed to build empathy into AI. Human Initiative is a nonprofit supported by Human AI that's laying out the ethical guidelines needed to dictate how this technology should and shouldn't be used. And so while Human AI brings together leading AI researchers, emotion scientists, uh, ML engineers in the space, the Human Initiative brings together ethicists, 
social scientists and cyber law experts who can really think about what should dictate whether or not we, a given use case should be pursued and lay out concrete ethical guidelines. And then the human initiative requires all of its customers to uh, adhere to those guidelines. Right. Okay. So we've got a, a, a <laughs> few, few jumping off points there, a few things to kind of unpack and get into. There's this whole idea of ethical AI and what that means sort of broadly. There's emotion science and kind of what that means, you know, sort of broadly, but specific to, I think, some of the things that apply to sort of the immersive immersive technology, immersive sort of virtual augmented reality um, ideas that, that go into this metaverse thing. Um, and uh, did I say three? I think I said three, but there's more to it than that. Um, <laughs> well, why don't we start with emotion science? Because uh, I think that's a fascinating topic that, that people might not be familiar with. So can you explain a little bit about what that means? Yeah. So emotion science is, for the most part, the study of nonverbal behaviors that people use to express emotion and what they indicate about your experience, how they're perceived and preserved across different cultures and across ages and demographics and contexts. And so facial expression has been a major focus of the science, going back to Charles Darwin, who actually wrote the expressions of emotion in man and animals, which was mostly about how facial expressions in chimps and uh, you know, even, even cats kind of resemble human expressions. And he had a theory around that. Uh, and then there's the you know, vocal expressions and language, how we, how we express ourselves in words. The more recently, emotion science has gotten more into vocal expression. Um, but it's, you know, the, the question is, what do these signals mean? We use them all the time. Uh, and that question is obviously becoming more and more important as AI is processing those signals. Because we, we talk to each other, you know, and we see each other in video and we automatically read these signals and we use them to empathize with each other. And so that's really important. It's how we understand each other's emotions. And it has a motivational force on our behaviors. We right. instinctively as humans, for the most part, want to treat each other well. There's some famous counterexamples that improve the rule, basically. Right, right. <laughs> but, but we're mostly interested in, uh, in people reacting well to us. And so we use that information uh, to learn how we can behave in ways that are good for other people. AI and, also sees the same information, right? So it's the question of how we get AI to, to do the same thing. And so yeah. what's sort of the, um, I don't know if state of the art quite the right word, but What's kind of the state of emotion science in today's internet to kind of speak broadly the way that, that we interact? We, you know, you and I are talking to each other, we're actually talking to each other on a video call, but people are listening as audio only. Um, video calls have obviously become, you know, a, a big part of mainstream life lately. And so that's one thing when we can see each other's faces in real time. But as we, we talk about um, any kind of other you know, animated experience or using avatars or these different ways that we are and, and will be more and more interacting with other people online. How does emotion science, I mean, where are we at right now with how emotion science is, is being maybe best used um, on the web? Yeah, I mean, I would say that it's in the early days yeah. um, and it's through these, this field of affective computing which is 
you would think it, it would just act as a bridge between emotion science and technology, but it's actually kind of acted as its own separate field where you have affective computing researchers who historically haven't talked much to emotion scientists and, okay. uh, and are sort of interacting with developers who want to use this for different applications. Um, and the field of affective computing, computing has, was originally, it was conceived by computer scientists. And the assumption going in was basically this emotion stuff is figured out, you know? <laughs> uh, and so like, okay, well, there's six emotions that, which we know, um, Ekman proposed these six emotions, 19, well, 1960s, 1970s, anger, fear, happiness, disgust, sadness, and surprise. And there's six ex facial expressions that go with those emotions. And so affective computing for a very long time was just focused on, can we classify those six facial expressions? Okay. Unfortunately, <laughs> emotion <laughs> science hadn't really figured this stuff out yet. Um, right, because right. what those six, the reason there, there was a focus on those six facial expressions in the first place was mostly a matter of convenience. Sure. So the study, the scale of these studies was limited. Paul Ekman himself wanted to go around the world showing pictures, a limited set of pictures to people and see if they just thought they meant the same things as what people in the US thought they meant. Um, right. And he just chose these six expressions because he thought these were like the six major expressions that were maximally kind of distinct and prototypical that he could think of to just see, just query, do other people understand these? And he went to Papua New Guinea and he went to other places, other people who sort of tried to replicate that. Um, and this experiments are very small scale, you know, 10, 20, 30 people in each culture and, and they don't always replicate, but this was never intended to be a definitive taxonomy of emotion. Unfortunately, it sort of took off that way. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and the field of emotion science bears a lot of the blame for that. But then, you know, once it gets into affective commuting outside the field, the perception was this has been figured out. Let's focus on, on labeling these six expressions. The problem is that when you go back and do large scale studies, which we've now done and ask people to label thousands of different expressions and ask thousands of people around the world to do it. Uh, and they're more naturalistic and sampled more randomly with more, uh, you know, actual emotion involved in not, not posed expressions. You see that this taxonomy captures a very small part of what we're actually expressing, probably about 25% most of the time. Right. Right. So in your own work, you identified more than just the yeah. six. Yeah. So we have gone around the world now and we've gathered facial, not just facial expressions, but also vocal expressions like laughs and sighs and screams and uh, speech prosody samples. So people, you know, while people are speaking, it's not just the words they say, but the way they say them that mm -hmm. conveys emotion for the most part. And that's the kind of the tune, rhythm and timbre speech. And we've uh, gathered samples from around the world of that. We've gathered people's reactions there, what they're actually feeling in response to really evocative kinds of stimuli videos around the world. And we have people rate these and judge these and conceptualize them in all kinds of different ways, not just what they're, they think this expression means that they're producing or that they're seeing, but you know what they're feeling at a given time. Um, and there are at least 28 different dimensions of facial expression. Right, okay. <laughs> there's, a, there's at least 24 vocal expression dimensions. There's uh, a lot in language. I mean, language is almost you know, infinite because you can right. make up more <laughs> yeah. and more emotion words, right? Yep, yep. Uh, but then when you look at what people reliably experience in response to, for example, paintings, there's 25 dimensions you can distinguish that people reliably experience in response to paintings. In response to okay. videos, it's, it's, it's you know, 27, um, just in terms of evocative short videos. Um, 
And so when you why, try to, not, yeah, not to, uh, not to derail you, but why, <laughs> why the discrepancy between a, a painting and a video in terms of the number of, of uh, emotions that can be evoked? So these are all lower bounds. And I think okay. probably at the end of the day, you can find a painting that evokes almost any emotion. But, okay. Okay. Um, got it. Yeah. But you know, this is, this is more just to say across cultures, across different kinds of people, nuanced uh, emotions can be reliably identified. These are not synonyms, in other words. Like you might right. say like, okay, right. anger and contempt, right? Uh, they kind of mean similar things. Maybe they're just, the words themselves just have a contextual meaning that doesn't have to do with the actual feeling that you're experiencing. Maybe it doesn't have to do with the expression that you're making. It's just depending on the context, but actually, no, these are just distinct things. They happen in distinct situations and we actually recognize in the voice, the difference between anger, which is like, versus sorry, contempt, that's contempt, versus anger, which is right. okay. <laughs> like the different sounds in the voice. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yep. yep, that just pushing the air out of my lips is my contempt, which is, nah. Yeah, that's right. one of them, right? Yep. Uh, another one is kind of the high arousal contempt, which is like, ha, huh. <laughs> right. like, right. like as if. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Uh, and it's more of a laugh, but, you know, so th there's, uh, specific signals for these that you see, and they're linked to specific experiences and different cultures. So you can take people, there's words for contempt, words for anger, identified in the same scenario, and they're you know seen in the same expressions. And just this has been overlooked for the most part by emotion science. And when you try to classify things in terms of the six original categories, they only capture 25% of this broader space. But not only that, they also have more rare emotions and expressions. Most of the time, people are just thinking, they're just expressing interest or confusion or, uh, you know, contentment. It's kind of lower arousal things as they're navigating their lives. And so that's what you'll see in most data. And when they do experience, of course, a high arousal emotion like anger or awe or amusement, it's a very significant moment that kind of defines their whole day potentially. Right. And so it's funny as, as I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about how does this apply to online experiences, whether that, um, uh, to use these words, a user would go and experience something or a creator might, you know, create an experience and, and look to either evoke feelings or, you know, detect them and, and respond appropriately. I'm thinking about possible applications, but all I can see in my mind's eye are emojis. <laughs> just sort of, <laughs> as you're talking, I'm just thinking like, oh, right, there's my angry emoji and my confused <laughs> emoji, my, my head exploding emoji. But how are, how are folks, um, you know, folks who you're working with at, at Hume or just who you experienced otherwise, how are they using the science now to inform online experiences? And then how does that play into uh, this concept you mentioned of empathetic AI? Yeah, so the, they're not just limited to our customers, but a lot of people are moving into this space yes. for a lot of you know, reasons. One is actually because of the focus on the metaverse, where you have much more access to people's actual facial expressions or audio or uh, the way that they're speaking and not just what they're saying in text. It, it's a whole new world of data to analyze. And um, we're also at a point with AI where this makes a real difference. Um, you know, up until now, most of the difference you would be making if you were trying to improve a digital assistant, like a Siri or right. an Alexa or Google Assistant, what have you, 
most like the bigger difference is in sort of is it are its responses accurate in the kind of the same way a search engine is but you have less data to go by because it's just one channel of information at a time it's not like you can serve as 100 results it really has to focus on getting one answer correct um and that is that's been a major focus and then large language models have played for example a really big role in that um but then there's this huge channel missing which is emotional intonation Mm -hmm. And when you talk to a digital assistant, you're without even realizing it, you're using emotional intonation, right? <laughs> like, I, well, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, beaten to death joke at this point, but it's still true. I feel like when I talk to Siri and get frustrated that Siri is not playing the song that I really worked hard to, to articulate and, and get my intonation to know that particular song, how can Siri not? pick up on my, you know, my, my non, uh, yeah. or my, my, what my non-language cues, right. The, the tone in my voice when I'm frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's so critical because we expect it to, like if we didn't expect it to and sort of adjusted, but like the way that we expect somebody to understand what we're saying, we just assume the emotional intonation is understood. Right. And, uh, and when you're saying to, you know, the assistant, hey, that's not the right song. Uh, you don't usually say it in such a concrete way. It's like, ah, oh, right. come on, like, not that, no. And the more worked up you are, the less words you use. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> use more right. yeah. So yeah. it should be able to kind of propagate that and say, I did the wrong thing. Let me update the algorithm. Let me update right. the algorithm, make it more personalized for this person, et cetera. And, and are they, and I don't mean to pick on one versus the others. It's just the one that I happen to have experienced most recently. Um, but are they further along than, than I might realize, or I might be characterizing like it, are the voice assist, the digital assistants actually able to pick up on emotions to some extent now, or is that not there yet? They're still working on it. I mean, it's okay. still a research project at these okay. companies um, and they really want to get it right. You know, it's yeah. very important right. for yes. many reasons. Yeah. You know, uh, when our emotions are misunderstood, it's not good. And we also, you know, we want to feel like it's being used with us and not against us. Right. You know, Absolutely. Particularly yeah. when you use emotional intonation. So that, you know, that's, that's what we've been working on, getting it right and making sure it's people understand that it's being used for good purposes. Right. Um, when you mentioned, you know, uh, different companies and, and, and individuals looking now to the, to the metaverse as kind of, oh, well, we really need to get this right. Or, you know, another way of looking at it is, oh, well, there's going to be so much more data to inform, you know, the, the, figuring out what the human's responses are and then creating, you know, if, if it's a digital assistant, a chat bot, something like that. Um, I assume we're talking about, you know, sort of a, a VR or extended reality experience where there's a microphone picking up what I'm, what I'm saying. There are potentially uh, eye tracking devices in the headset picking up on what I'm looking at and how fast my eye is moving and all these sorts of things. Um, and, and, you know, we're on video, like I said, so you're nodding. So um, how much of, where are we? Well, I'm going to ask, and you can answer a different question if there's a better question to answer. Where are we now in terms of how much of this data, even if it's like you said, in sort of the research project stage, how much of this user data coming from all these different places, my, my inputs that I, I'm making with a pointer device, my eye tracking, my, my voice, the the sounds I'm making that maybe aren't language, 
how much of this data is actually right now being captured and, and used and, and, you know, as part of figuring out just how to incorporate emotion science into all of the experiences that are, you know, taking shape, but maybe not there yet in, in something like the metaverse? So, yeah, I mean, we're at the stage where companies, you know, across the board are hiring affective computing researchers. <laughs> like it's, it's like a new uh, age for that. Um, I, I don't think everybody realizes the extent to which affective computing is sort of changing and emotion science is sort of changing. And um, people have new ideas that are, that are now very essential to incorporate. Um, but, uh, you know, companies like Meta and Netflix and Disney and, uh, you know, and Google and Apple, and they all have affective computing researchers. Like right, there's, right. there's a whole, so, um, you know, they're all working on gaze detection. Um, and, you know, for example, um, in the metaverse, uh, anyone developing a headset wants to incorporate gaze detection, very important. Um, anyone uh, developing a headset wants to incorporate you know, vocal intonation and facial expression. And they're at the stage where they're sort of writing patents and you see, you see different patents coming out of different ways to incorporate these behaviors, but it's sort of unclear the extent to which they're actually being incorporated in, in, the, in the technologies that are available to the consumer right now. Right. I mean, my own, I, I had a little bit of trouble phrasing the question because I kept getting stuck mentally on, you know, this very sophisticated thing that we're talking about, but then the reality of current, you know, metaverse experiences, right, that are, you know, <laughs> the Meta Horizons famously has no legs. And that that doesn't necessarily mean anything as far as, you know, <laughs> right. how smart their AI is. But the reality is, as a consumer, like, well, let's get some legs first and then we can work on the facial expressions. And, you know, I'm yeah. <laughs> making a joke to make the point, but that's kind of where we're at. There's this gap, but we are yeah. talking about the future in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge amount of work to be done. Um, on the other hand, you know, you can think of some of these technologies as very related. So digital assistants, uh, Google Assistant, Alexa, Siri, Cortana are the voice underpinning of what digital avatars will be in the metaverse. And right. the metaverse is sort of the simulated reality where you can have basically the digital avatars are just acting like robots, but they don't need to program in a way to actually interact with the physical world, which turns out to be the really hard part about robots. But by the time we actually get that, it will have been practiced in the metaverse, uh, all these technologies, and then they'll make their way into robots. So there's kind of a tier of technologies that are related. And so, um, you know, even even things like uh, like photo taking incorporate facial expression now, and that will sort of make its way into how digital avatars respond to facial expressions and uh, and form facial expressions. Uh, what is the ideal facial expression in a given scenario? That's an important question for photo taking and thumbnailing and all these other things, and that will make its way into digital avatars and how they respond to you. What I'm wondering as we're talking about all of this. What do you see as the, um, I want to use words like, what's the goal? What's the point? And I don't know if that's quite it, but, you know, there, there's a lot on uh, human AI and the human initiative on, on, on your, your web pages. And, and you and I have talked before that a big focus of what you're doing, maybe the main focus is trying to make sure that, that all of this work with, with AI and emotion science aligns with 
human well-being and that it's all in service of fostering human well-being. And so when I'm I'm thinking and I'm talking to people about this idea of the metaverse and what's to come, you know, it, it's this really mixed bag because on the one hand, it's easy to sort of jump to, well, do we really all want to be strapped into goggles all day or, you know, be wearing glasses that are feeding us data all day. And then I think about it, I'm like, well, that's kind of how things are right now, right? That, I mean, how often am I glued <laughs> yeah. to my phone if I'm not in front of a computer screen, that kind of thing. Um, and so then it sort of gets to, okay, well, if that's kind of the given, whatever the hardware, whatever the experiences and this idea that I'm, you know, people will probably be moving from more intensive experiences where maybe I'm immersed in a VR thing, or even just, you know, like we are now sitting in front of a laptop and then I move throughout the day and I'm in the physical world, but it's augmented by data and all that kind of stuff. So whatever the experience is, let's just take for a given there will be more and more data rich immersive experiences. So then we get to this, this idea of, okay, well, if all of these people are going to be interacting with digital assistance and, and bots and experiences that are created, then there's a huge amount of thought that can be put into what do we want these experiences to do? And so for somebody like you, who's literally, you know, working on it and figuring out the science and thinking about, well, how does the science affect human beings and all of that? What are some of the things that either you're really hoping that we're moving towards or on the flip side, you're really working to ensure that, you know, we we avoid um, going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that you've characterized the metaverse is kind of spot on. Uh, the, the idea that it's a more immersive data-rich experiences, whether that's in extended reality, augmented reality, virtual reality, what have you, there's going to be more data processed by AI. And it's going to offer you more immersion in the sense that it's going to uh, perhaps carry out your intentions for you. It's going to present more information to you. It's going to augment the things that you see. Uh, it's going to create worlds and experiences and you know, maybe uh, add some music to that and you know, all these different things. Um, and so, you know, at the same time, the AI is getting smarter and it's gonna be able to process this data in smarter and smarter ways. Um, and, and so where it's almost an inevitability to me that AIs that process your facial expression or images of you that have your facial expression in them and that process your voice and that process text will have to know about the emotional states you're in to do their jobs, whatever their, you know, if that's their input and they have some objective um, it really, really matters what that objective is and how they're using that input. Um, and increasingly it matters if, if emotions are involved. Um, and so if we want to make sure that they're using the emo our emotional behaviors in ways that, that we want them to, they'll have to be able to, we'll have to be able to instruct them how to use their emotional behaviors, which means this facial expression, you do this, <laughs> you know, or, you know, this is a good sign. And then this is a bad sign if somebody is expressing amusement or satisfaction or uh, or awe more every single day. That's good. Then you can take that as the sign of their well-being. Um, if they're angrier every day, that's bad. And AI now has the capacity to be able to measure its effects on people and back propagate that. Um, and that is so you know important to point in the right direction. You know, <laughs> like it shouldn't be taking your expressions of 
uh, of anger as as uh, indicative of it and aligned with its goal. It, it, you should say, you know, expressions of anger are never something to encourage. But it, 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 if if your goal is if the goal of the of the assistant is uh, or the environment is to get you to engage more, and it can provoke you uh, into you know engaging more by by showing you things that make you angry and that you want to yell at and you feel like you need to spend time um, dissenting to or whatever even if that's fake news or it's a troll, it's right. going to show you more of that. I mean, trolls take advantage of this, right? <laughs> like the, the, the reason that, that, uh, that trolls are so problematic is because they've figured out the way that humans know how to do it to get people to pay attention to them. And so you waste time spending time in the comment threads with the troll. Yeah. People do this. The problem is that the algorithm is also incentivized to get you to spend time in comment threads. And so the troll and the algorithm are in alignment. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. That's something you want to prevent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you how do you prevent it? I mean, is it a matter of convincing the stakeholders who control these algorithms to realign their their own incentives? I don't think as much of that needs to be done. I think that um, the stakeholders want you to have a good experience, and they don't like the trolls but they just haven't figured out a way to solve this problem. So I, I think I think fundamentally, it's a difficult problem because you're giving the AI an objective and that's based on the data that you see. And normally it's kind of the lowest hanging fruit, which is how much time do you spend doing something? How often you click on this? And that's generally an indication like, okay, if you spend time on something, you that's your decision. And, and so that, you know, on, on balance, that will be a good thing, hopefully. But you also run into situations where, where it's not a good thing. Um, you know, the, the obvious example is like smoking cigarettes is something that a lot of people do, maybe even if they're trying to quit and it's not a good thing right. or, um, but, you know, also spending 10 hours a day on social media in retrospect, if you're doing that, you probably will acknowledge that's not the best use of your time. Um, but you did it anyway. Right. So, <laughs> um, so how do we, how do we make sure that the algorithm is, uh, is accomplishing its objective in ways that we like? Um, and to, to, to be able to make sure of that is an interpretability issue first and foremost. So basically you need to be able to figure out what the means that the algorithm is using to get you to be more engaged or whatever its objective may be. And if the means is, you know, presenting you with things that make you angry, um, then, uh, then it could, it, it, you know, it could, we could figure that out until don't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if you're, if, you know, it, it could have for everything that it could show you, it could have an estimate, not only of how much more engaged you'll be incrementally by having seen that thing, but also of how much it will affect every single emotion that you have. And they have so much data that they could potentially estimate this. And then they'd be able to see, okay, this estimate, like for this troll comment is, is that it would get people to be more engaged, but it would also make people this much angrier. And so we won't do that. We're going to, that's going to be incorporated into the cost function. Right. The guest today is Dr. Alan Cowan. Alan is the CEO and chief scientist of Hume AI and also the executive director of the Hume Foundation, which is the uh, nonprofit uh, companion or sibling, if you will, to Hume AI. We're talking about emotion science and uh, what that means to AI, empathetic AI, and looking forward into the metaverse. And, you know, as we're talking, Alan, or as I'm listening to you talking, I'm thinking about, um, I'm thinking about a lot of things. I'm thinking about on the first episode of the show, um, the guest was Nenea Reeves, who's the CEO of a company called Trip that's building um, 
experience VR experiences for wellness and mindfulness, and their experiences are generative. And um, as we're talking, you're talking about trolls and other things that the algorithm can sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of pre, not predetermined, but estimate, you know, what's the effect going to be on you, the user, if you see this or engage with it or not. And I'm thinking about the difference between human experiences and, and human characters and humans that we might encounter online in the metaverse and then created experiences and whether those are sort of handcrafted or they're generative. Um, and, and I would imagine more and more of them will be generative as we go forward. Um, is there... Is this part of your work or, or do you have thoughts on sort of the differences between, I don't know, between human-human interactions and human interactions with, um, with uh, characters or experiences that are generated by AI and, and how that is going to be? I'm just, at, the more that we're talking, the more I'm imagining yeah. like, <laughs> oh, you know, when this metaverse thing is really whatever it is or kind of more immersive, God, I think a lot more of my interactions are going to wind up being with, you know, bots and other generated things as opposed to just, you know, interacting with, with a human being. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, there's two things. So one is that there's an analogy between uh, sort of algorithms today that curate content, which is primarily what they do, right, right. and algorithms that generate content, right? right. So that, that's a fundamental analogy because they might actually be optimized for exactly the same thing, but the realm of what they can show you or uh, the, the experience they're, 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 they're producing is not, for, for the generative uh, example, is not confined to things that already exist. That's really <laughs> the difference. And right, so right, it's right. just, it, there's an explosion of possibilities, of yeah. course. Um, you can think of human to human interaction as either, you know, things that you, you have to do every day that you go and doing, um, or they're part of this curated experience, uh, which, you know, in the case of, of, you know, online games or social networks, or, you know, the earlier versions of the metaverse experience that we have today, these are curated in part by the algorithms because they're deciding who you interact with and, you know, what person are you responding to? And it's entirely their decision whether uh, to show that to you. Of course, like your decision, if you have multiple possibilities, which one to choose. Right. Uh, but but the realm that you're choosing from is you know one one millionth <laughs> of the realm of possibility that the algorithm uh, could have shown you, and and it's choosing you know a hundred one millionths of it. <laughs> and so, <laughs> right, right, right. And so in some ways, like the algorithm has more, exerts more choice over what you're, who you're going to interact with than you do um, as you, as you enter the sites, assuming it's not a direct message where, you know, that's until fully the intention of the person you're interacting with to initiate it. But the algorithm otherwise is, you know, when you're just looking at your newsfeed, that's the case. Um, so, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 please. Yeah. <laughs> so you asked about, you know, what's the difference between interacting with the human versus interacting with the machine? Um, yep. And I think uh, the machine is a generated experience in, in this conceptualization of things. And the human is something that there's <laughs> another thing that the algorithm could choose from to show you. To produce, but they're both sort of experiences in the same sense. And they could be optimized for the same thing. You know, you, if the algorithm is optimized for your well-being, it could select 
interactions on that basis with more humans. Ideally, I think it's probably better for people's well-being to interact with a lot of humans every day than to just interact with a machine. But <laughs> but maybe maybe there's situations where those can be comparable, like in the movie Her, where he's spending a lot of time interacting with machine. But it right. kind of supplants social interaction, right? Well, so I was I was actually just going to ask you about that. Um, have you studied either yourself or, or in your work come across studies that that look at um, I don't know the the emotional effects? And I'm imagining it's a letdown. I've experienced letdowns when I've been, you know, online doing something, whatever it is, and then or it doesn't even have to be on the computer. It can be in a movie theater, right? And then coming out of it, and it's sort of this, you know, emotionally intense experience in one way or another, or, or if not intense, uh, engrossing, right? And then when it's over, there's a letdown. And sort of coming back to reality, so to speak, is a little bit of a letdown. I want to say that the more time that I and we spend on screens or, or interacting with generative generated experiences or, or even if not even if it's if it's there's a human being on the other end but we're we're interacting it's it's mediated by long distance technology coming out of it there can be a, a bit of a letdown um is that real is that something that that just scientifically you know you've explored or you've read other people's work and have explored is that an actual thing and if so does that concern you in as we're talking about experiences becoming digital experiences becoming, you know, more and more immersive and more and more data rich and even more and more sort of geared to, you know, if the empathetic AI is doing things to help me have positive experiences and promote my well-being, am I gonna crash when I get off the computer and then go deal with, you know, physical reality? Yeah, I mean, people study the kind of temporal unfolding of emotional processes, right? And whether um, your experience in a given moment uh, being more positive results in, you know, for a given uh, kind of experience, uh, more negative experience in the long run. I mean, uh, the famous example is uh, that, you know, kind of challenges our intuitions on this. Um, is a, uh, a study of people undergoing colonoscopies. Um, and they agreed to be assigned to two groups. Okay. <laughs> in one group, yeah, and you might have heard of this. In, in one group, they would just undergo the colonoscopy and then afterward, uh, they would report, you know, how bad was the experience. Okay. Um, and in another group, the, the doctors were actually asked to do a completely unnecessary additional part of the colonoscopy at the end okay. that was a completely an addendum to the experience and was slightly less painful than the colonoscopy, or less painful than the colonoscopy. The procedure that was unnecessary, less painful, that was added onto the, ticked onto the end. And people thought this overall experience was significantly less bad. Right, than, right, than right. The, than, right. Okay. Uh, and so. <laughs> and is that because it, so, end, it ended with something a little better? Yeah, it ended something bad. a little bit less bad. A little less and bad. For yeah. some reason, we just remember that part. And, right. you yeah. know. And so, and so there's a lot of, uh, I don't know exactly why I brought that up. But I think. <laughs> the, the last three weeks of senior year weren't horrible. So actually high school wasn't all that bad. It was, you know, yeah. Right. And so there's a lot you can do to manipulate sort of the timeline of experience. But the, the bottom line, I think, is that what you should be measuring is 
people's long-term well-being. Not like what there is their reaction at, in the given moment to something, but what is their, you know, having had that experience, are they better off or worse off the next day or the next week or the next month? And you can model that if you have enough people involved, right? right, right. Um, it's a noisier measure because the influence of the experience on what your well-being is the next day, whatever those indicators are, whether it's nonverbal expression, how often you smile, awe, um, how, whether it's negative expressions or self-reporting that you're satisfied with your life or that you're happy, whatever your indicators are, the effect of the experience on that is going to be dramatically reduced if you're measuring the next day. But if there is an effect, um, it's no, you know, it, it's just a matter of scale to be able to measure it. That's all it is. It's just if, if the effect size is one tenth the size, um, then you need 100 times more people uh, to be able to capture it. Um, and in many cases, the constraint is not the number of people that you can measure because these systems affect billions of people. And so, <laughs> and so you could optimize the AI for the next day well-being. And that would be great, right? Um, right. And, and, so, and, and so if there is a letdown at the end of the experience, and on the whole, you're worse off for having had the experience that will show up in that data. Right. What's going on right now in in the work that you're doing, or again, maybe work that you've seen kind of, you know, arm's length removed from, that's really got you excited about the future of where, you know, any and all of this stuff might be headed. Yeah, I mean, the we have some interesting collaborations where they're actually optimizing, for example, digital assistance for whether somebody is laughing in response or forming expressions of interest with their face and their voice. And when you do that, there's, you can have a high fidelity signal of that, depending on what the digital assistant is getting in response. And you can prove that by optimizing for that, you're able to, in testing, in a separate you know, set of uh, test participants or, um, or separate cohort, show that the algorithm optimized for that is good for other facets of well-being. Okay. Um, and, and that could include other positive expressions. So it's not like increasing amusement at the expense of all the other positive expressions. It's actually increasing all your positivity and lowering all your negativity. And you can show, and, and, so there's, there should be a general well-being factor that you can measure. I think that kind of approach is really exciting because um, yeah, yeah. that has the generalizability to operate across almost any system. If you have enough people uh, who are willing to supply their data for this, and you can guarantee that they'll, you know, the data will become private, but it will be used to update the algorithm, and the algorithm will get better. Then that, this is a real proof of concept that you can optimize algorithms for well-being. Are we going to have so something? Be, sorry, yeah. are we going to have yeah. something akin yeah. to like a net promoter score, where you know it's like the the well-being score of a particular experience, or or even an algorithm? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the net, you know, this is the ultimate metric to me as well-being. And, you know, if you can, obviously that, you know, you still need to validate a business that's producing the application and it can't be increasing your well-being at the expense of like any revenue. You know, it has to still be able to optimize for revenue, but it should be able to do that in a way that's exclusively good for your well-being. Um, and I think that score is going to be kind of the most important thing to look at and hopefully... The thing that people focus on in the future and NPS, you know, that that's good, but it's, it's still, you know, are you going to recommend it to somebody else? And you can potentially optimize that. I mean, that's a good, that's a good metric, but you can optimize, you can optimize it at the expense of well-being in, in yeah. certain ways. No, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is there yeah. a, um, 
Is there a, a consensus or, or maybe a better way to ask, are there significant competing views on what well-being means? So in other words, like, is there sort of, you know, you, you're, you've got kind of a, a, a established, but, but being iterated upon, you know, idea of well-being and how to measure well-being and how that applies to, you know, an algorithm or what have you. But then there's another team working on this and, and they're, their thing is at odds with what you're doing and you guys kind of have to fight it out or is it there kind of a consensus being built? So, I mean, in the, in the, in the scientific literature, there's certainly yeah. a lot of debate about what constitutes well-being, and yeah. there's even different kind of self-report questions. Like, are you happy right now? Or, you know, um, how happy have you been for the past week? Are you satisfied with your life? Generally, these things are actually very, very correlated, but you can pick out instances where there's divergences. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I don't think self-reports should be the only answer. I think, it, uh, you know, um, there's, there's cases where there's divergences even in the very concept of self-report from what other indicators of happiness show. Like there's a famous study where uh, they looked at people's, how happy people said they were um, depending on their you know, political affiliation. And religious people all, you know, usually say they're happier and conservative people say they're happier and liberals uh, don't say they're as happy, but liberals actually smile more um, <laughs> or, or show more genuine smile more often. Interesting. And so they looked and they like, well, this is this is sort of at odds. And they also saw that the extent to which conservatives reported being happier than liberals could be explained by conservatives viewing happiness as a virtue. Um, and so a lot of this is based on sort of biases that people have where they'll inflate things that, that you know, the average person says they're smarter than the average person. You know? sure, right. and, and, <laughs> right. and that's because intelligence is a virtue. And the average person says they're happier than the average person. Um, and that varies to, I guess, across political affiliations as well, where liberals are more likely to think it's okay not to be happy. But, you know, um, <laughs> that, but that's just like, no, no one metric is, is the ultimate metric. Yeah. And I think even though there's this scientific debate over certain terminal, you know, terms and what, what's the right question to ask and, you know, what are the right expressions that are positive versus negative? Um, and there's also the fact that complicating this whole thing that sometimes we like negative expressions. Like when we're watching a horror movie, we want it to be something that scares us. And right, then afterward, right. you know, we feel better for that having happened. Um, right. even though it's a negative expression you, know, they, you might i stay away from horror movies myself but that's i i you know i i, I have mixed feelings about it but anyway yeah. <laughs> the whole, whole nother, people should check out the fred armison episode on oh right exactly there you go. that's where we talk about that but yep. anyway so so there's a mix of uh, there's a range of views on like for for the edge cases what counts but i think there's still edge cases i think you know 99 of the time um, there won't be any ambiguity about whether something makes you better off or worse off because all, the many different indicators of well-being where it will be in alignment. Uh, things that you know, make you say you're happier will also make you smile more and will also make you feel more you know, gratitude and uh, express more gratitude to people and give more to charity and uh, be less likely to be diagnosed with a mental illness. And all, you know, all these different indications, they, 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 they do generally go hand in hand. And so to the extent that there's disagreement, it'll be like, well, we can see that, you know, this change in an algorithm makes people report being happier and maybe they're smiling more, but actually they're laughing less or something. You know, you can imagine right, like right, these right, are these right. rare edge cases 
And so how right. often is, is that going to be an argument? Well, I mean, it could sometimes be an argument that would be had. But, you know, even if you just say like, all right, I'm going to take all those edge cases and just throw them out and not use this methodology for those, I think that still leaves 99% of of cases where measuring well-being will be an unambiguous thing because the different indicators will be in alignment. Hmm. Um, do biometrics play into measuring well-being? So you're talking about like uh, like measuring blood pressure, heart rate, heart rate blood pressure, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, they definitely do. Um, there's evidence that you know in situations where you might expect people to not report. Uh, on their emotions as honestly, you can still pick up on them uh, from physiology, but these, but those indicators are also very, very noisy and very yeah. context dependent. So if I've had more coffee, my heart rate will be higher and it's not a right. bad thing necessarily. Right. And, and um, you know, if I, if I went on a run, <laughs> my heart rate will be higher. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's uh, something, you know, respiratory sinus arrhythmia. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that, but that's no. another it's a, it's a measure of parasympathetic uh, nervous system response, which is engaged when we uh, uh, are engaged in social interaction with each other. Um, it tends to correlate with well-being. And um, it, uh, you know, it was engaged when we're kind of hugging each other and uh, correlate with oxytocin and stuff too. Right. Um, uh, and so that's, that's kind of a nice measure to have, like also known as vagal tone and there's various ways of measuring it, but that's, that's a, a nice complementary physiological measure. If, if you're not sure if something is good for people's well-being. Um, and there's certain cases where like you'll have a lot of physiological data and you'll be able to optimize for that and show that the algorithm that's optimized for that is better for people's well-being, even if, your proxy of well-being that you have from the physio data alone is not that great. If it's, even if it's like a noisy proxy, it's not noisy in a way that's biased. It's noisy in a way that's there's just more variability to it, and the algorithm can learn valid um, assessments of well-being from it. Like that, I think there's a place for that. So, given given how much you how much time and bandwidth you spend on all of this stuff, and how much you obviously know about it, and all of your experiences, do you find yourself walking around looking at people? And sort of almost Terminator style, there's you know sort of mental overlay <laughs> trying to assess their emotions at a given time and, and that sort of thing. I don't do that typically while I'm talking to people, but you know what is funny is that there's certain things you notice in the way that things are presented, and for example, advertisements. Mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, I you know this is I can tell what the advertisement is for based on the expression of the person. If I block everything else <laughs> out, like this is a cosmetic ad, or this is a this is a car advertisement. Right, 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 right. That's awesome. <laughs> and you see these like extreme regularities across that, and like you can also look at YouTube and peruse the thumbnails that they show for the videos, and it's like, right. okay, well, <laughs> like right. this is a prank video. <laughs> this is oh, so that's. So now, now I know at the end of this conversation, what I want is I want, I guess it would be like a Chrome extension or something that can scan all of the YouTube thumbnails before I, or, or anyone in my family for that matter, clicks a video and give me that score of, you know, this is going to nudge your well-being up. This is going to nudge it down. Don't, don't click this video. Wouldn't that be amazing? So, you know, let, let's have you back on the show when you've got that figured out. And I'll be working on it. I'll be working on it. And don't worry, it will be opt-in and everybody will be better off. Yes, opt-in, definitely. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, Alan, before I let you go here, um, anything that you want to plug on the way out the door, so to speak, things that Hume, either, either the initiative or Hume AI is working on that listeners might want to go check out? 
Yeah, I mean, if you're a developer and you're interested in pursuing some of these technologies, anything that where you have text and you have video or you have audio and you want to classify people's emotional behaviors and you're doing it with the intent of improving their well-being, um, please sign up for our waitlist at Hume.ai. Uh, if you support the Hume initiative or you're just curious about the guidelines that we've set out, which are the kind of the first concrete guidelines for empathic AI and we want feedback and we want to continue building on them. And if you want to join that effort, you can check out the humaninitiative.org. And uh, if you're interested in the podcast, The Feelings Lab, uh, check that out on wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, SoundCloud, YouTube, it's all there. You can also find it on the Human AI website. Um, we have a content hub there. And um, if, last but not least, if you have questions for me, <laughs> uh, you, can, you can always email hello at human.ai. And we're uh, very happy to get questions and, and engage in those conversations. We'll be sure to put all those uh, in the show notes for listeners uh, later when you, you get a chance. You're, you're not on your run or doing whatever it is you're doing when you're listening to podcasts and tracking your emotional responses, but can actually click and check some of this stuff out in greater detail. Alan, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. It was a pleasure. Uh, again, I'll plug the NVIDIA AI podcast episode uh, that you're on talking about, talking about all this stuff, but through a slightly different lens. I think it's well worth listening to that as well for a more AI-centered uh, take on what you guys are doing. But it is, um, I could ask you questions all day. This is one of the conversations where everything you said generated more questions. And I was just like, all right, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep an eye on the clock and not keep you here too long. But uh, it, it's fascinating stuff. And I'm, I'm excited to um, keep an eye on your progress and track where all of this goes. Yeah, again, thanks for inviting me. Um, it was a pleasure to, to, to be here and I really enjoyed the conversation. Likewise, we'll, we'll do it again down the road. Awesome. All right, thanks again for listening and a special thanks to Dr. Alan Cowan for coming on the show. Uh, it was a great, fun conversation. Hope to have him back down the line. In the meantime, uh, we'll put all the links Alan mentioned in the show notes. Go check out everything that Hume is doing. And if you're a developer working in this field, as Alan said, you know, they'd love to hear from you. So, so definitely uh, jump on that and get in touch with Dr. Cowan and his team. And in the meantime, if you have feedback, if you have questions, if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Metaversepod at gmail.com is the email, or you can go on uh, social media. On Twitter, it's MetaversePod, also MetaversePod on Instagram. You can get in touch with us there. We'd love to hear you hear from you. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Subscribe, rate, review, all that stuff. You know what to do. We'll be back. New episodes on Tuesdays and I guess sometimes on Thursdays. My name is Noah Kravitz. This is the Metaverse Podcast. We'll see you next time. <laughs>